Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors read their articles or discuss them with ABR staff. My name is Peter Rose and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or just $60 for print plus online. In this week's ABR podcast, Gordon Pentland examines the theatrical impulses of contemporary British politics. If it is a truism that all politics is performance, Pentland tells us that British politicians have worked exceedingly hard to explore the full range of theatrical genres. This is not simply a form of electoral entertainment, he argues, but a means of capturing widespread nostalgia for the British past or at least popular notions of it. Gordon Pentland is Professor of History at Monash University and a specialist on the political history of Britain since the late 18th century. Parlour Games, Britain and the Anesthesia of Nostalgia is published in the May issue of ABR. I'm Gordon Pentland, Professor of History at Monash University in Melbourne. It is a truism that all politics is performance. Successful leaders are frequently adept in the manipulation and deployment of scripts, props, stages and costumes. To their credit, British politicians have worked exceedingly hard over the last year and more to explore the full range of theatrical genres. The vaudevillian moral vacuum of Boris Johnson's government was reprised in recent weeks as Johnson put on a command performance, all wispy blonde hair and faux indignation, for the Commons Privileges Committee. The unbelievable farce that ended his time at 10 Downing Street gave way swiftly to the burlesque come tragic comedy of Liz Truss and her Chancellor's calamitous, not to say ironic, mini-budget. We seem to have arrived in the efforts of Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer to outgravitas one another at a sustained attempt to revive the long-lost tradition of the morality play. Uniting these varied, and for British public life at least uniformly disastrous, experimentations with genre has been an underpinning concern with the technique of historical reenactment. This is perhaps unsurprising given the huge fillip that Brexit campaigning and the referendum gave to the selective weaponisation of the British past. Acres of academic and op-ed print now assign nostalgia, that painful and poignant longing for the landmarks of a familiar, even if largely imaginary past, as a primary cause of or at least the cultural wallpaper for Brexit. If no one has yet coined the term hyper-nostalgia to capture the quintessence of the official and institutional response in the United Kingdom to the death of Elizabeth II, I would like to do so here. The universal presence of nostalgia as political appeal, and at least in part as public mood, does much to explain recent British politics and its obsession with historical reenactment. Just as the sight of a single Roman legionary wearing an Apple Watch would ruin the spectacle for everyone involved, political reenactments work best as collective fantasy. Johnson had, of course, been fine-tuning his Winston Churchill travesty for some time. His 2014 book, The Churchill Factor, How One Man Made History, was just its lengthiest and most thinly veiled manifestation. As a stickler for verisimilitude, however, Johnson has now almost certainly gone too far in seeking to replicate the kind of pathological distrust Winnie inspired in his parliamentary party. The natural role for Keir Starmer to adopt in this simulated reality 
and indeed one which played to his own intrinsic strengths, was as a post-Second World War Clement Attlee. What better counterpoint to Johnson's hollow bombast could there be than a serious, modest and essentially uncharismatic London lawyer, an understated man who could inject some sense of moral purpose back into public life and consensually lead in the task of building a new Jerusalem after the pervasive sense of national trauma following Covid, and we might add following Brexit, but he almost certainly would not, at least in public. In seeking to channel these political personae, Starmer and Johnson had been at least shooting for the number one and two spots in most polls for best UK Prime Minister of all time. Liz Truss's crude off-the-peg Thatcher cosplay was altogether too blunt. It was also more pointedly and deliberately divisive. Even while it was an apparently more realist effort, it could not escape the inevitable pick-and-mix susceptibilities of historical reenactments. Like a performance of the US Civil War with the slaves left out, Truss zoomed in on the feel-good growth and tax-cutting dimensions of Thatcherism and entirely neglected the altogether harder, scarier and less popular driving down inflation bits. These latter were sidestepped in favour of outsourcing most of Britain's current malaise to one of those day ex machina, with which Truss so miserably failed to defend her record. Following Truss's grisly and spectacular end in October 2022, Brits might have been forgiven for thinking they had reached a natural end point for Tory cosplay, and in John Lanchester's damning phrase, of LARPing as a system of government. No such luck. Britain remains mired in its past. But what do these recent efforts leave in the historical costume wardrobe for current would-be reenactors at Westminster? Starmer's precocious efforts to reap a dullness dividend as leader of the Labour opposition have been infectious. It is no small indictment of the current state of Conservative politics that the very best that government strategists and the Downing Street press operation can hope for now is to convince the electorate that Rishi Sunak is a latter-day John Major. Thatcher's almost preternaturally dull and sensible successor, who snatched electoral victory in 1992 from an apparently unassailable Labour led by Neil Kinnock, is now an aspirational model in these troubling times. The parallels are substantial enough to lend a degree of credibility and authenticity to the effort. Unlike Major, however, Sunak has the additional small good fortune of not being seen as an individually responsible architect of the economic Armageddon of the mini-budget, and thus of the consequent evaporation of any claim the Tories might have retained to be sound on the economy. Otherwise, surrounded as he is by the malevolent shades of former leaders, and with his every waking moment sabotaged by the missteps and blunders of colleagues, the Sunak as Major comparison is persuasive. It even makes me nostalgic for my own school days of the 1990s, which routinely began with radio news of Tory MPs rustling the bushes on Hampstead Heath, taking bribes for parliamentary questions, or siring love children. Such moves in the reenactors' games provoke counter-responses. Starmer as Attlee has found himself obliged to pivot away from dullness, or rather away from only dullness as a political strategy. To preserve the equilibrium, he has gone fishing in the same 1990s pool, and along with his shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, has been systematically working on a Blair Brown tribute act. Labour's five missions for government, economy, NHS, crime, climate and education, are a full-colour HD version of Tony Blair's five pledges and embrace an almost identical slate of issues. Perhaps counterintuitively, in Scotland, a part of the United Kingdom, where we might think that different forms of nationalist and unionist politics would be much more freighted with history, 
the urge amongst political elites to reenact versions of their own past seems less acute. Of course, the vicious Scott-on-Scott violence of a Scottish National Party leadership contest following the resignation of an increasingly embattled Nicola Sturgeon necessarily and painfully visited the recent past. But in the absence of long institutional theatrical traditions in Edinburgh on which to draw, existential party, political and socio-economic questions did not send politicians to their costume cupboards. This has been a marked feature of Scottish politics for some time. During the 2014 independence referendum, there was a good deal of claptrap spoken and written about Scottish nationalism as an emotional pathology, based on a distorted sense of history and grievance. The irony was, of course, that in the same breath that these claims were uttered, leading figures on the no side of the debate, especially those from Westminster, frequently oriented themselves towards the past and an essentially nostalgic vision of Britishness. This is certainly not to suggest that politicians outside of London have found ready answers to common crises or are in most cases any more of a credit to public life than their Westminster peers. Any liberation from recent history is partial and patchy. After sustained turmoil at the top of Northern Ireland's largest political party, the Democratic Unionist Party, Geoffrey Donaldson's leadership has eagerly chained itself to the past to navigate its most pressing challenge. The party committee convened to pronounce on the so-called Windsor framework designed to solve the grimly predictable implosion of the post-Brexit Northern Ireland Protocol co-opted two former party leaders to its membership. It was due to report just ahead of the 25-year anniversary of the 1998 Good Friday Agreement, whose fraying edges Donaldson may have had in mind when he pronounced that history teaches us that it is always better to get the right outcome for Northern Ireland than a rushed one. Humza Yousaf, the new leader of an apparently imploding SNP and Scottish First Minister, may well be yet another choice by a party selectorate who will find it hard to convince anyone that he's not just old wine in old or at least familiar bottles. To his credit, however, if he does fail, he's likely to do so facing the present or the future rather than the past. And it is sustained focus on the scale and seriousness of contemporary and future challenges that is badly needed in the United Kingdom, rather than historical parlour games. Visions for the future, not endless reenactments of the past, are the only way of even beginning to tackle flatlining economic growth and living standards, life expectancies on the slide, and a global reputation at its lowest ebb in decades. If leaders must remain obsessed with past politics, they might look even further back. 140 years ago, a phlegmatic future Conservative Prime Minister, the Marquess of Salisbury, forwarded a bleak and alarming diagnosis. Shorn of its xenophobia and imperial preoccupations, its gravity fits contemporary Britain to a T. The dangers we have to fear may roughly be summed up in a single word, disintegration. It is the end to which we are being driven alike by the defective working of our political machinery and by the public temper of the time. Britain's current leaders would be wrong to think that donning a Salisbury costume would help to arrest this disintegration, or that the challenges or solutions of 1883 bear any realistic similarities to those of 2023. In narrowly political terms, their electoral strategies may be on the money. British voters may reward politicians for peddling the anaesthesia of nostalgia, acting seriously, and even for being dull after such a uniquely disruptive period. But the United Kingdom requires political leadership now and after the 2024 election that does more than just perform seriousness and that has the moral courage to fail while looking forwards. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. 
Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to AVR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the AVR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.